0: This is episode four of the Therapy Ideas podcast, a series of conversations with speech and language therapists from around the world. I'm Rhiannon Walton, and I'm talking to Rebecca Taylor about the differences between speech and language therapy services in the UK and the US. We talk about criteria for accepting children for therapy, intensity of input and supervision find out more about the podcast series at therapyideas.org or subscribe via iTunes by searching for Therapy Ideas. Welcome to the podcast. Um, Rebecca, it's great to have you. Let me just tell my listeners um, um, about you. So Rebecca works in Los Angeles at Head Start, which is a preschool program for low-income or at-risk children Um, but she's also worked over here in the UK so I thought it'd be really interesting to have her on the podcast so we can chat a bit about the differences between how things work in America and how things work here in the UK. So welcome Rebecca. Thank you, it's great to be here. Thank you. Um, So I've heard a few things about the way that you guys do your assessments over there, um, a few people have have sort of implied that. Um, that there's quite a clear protocol. So uh, I was wondering if you could explain, do you have to use certain assessments and does a child have to have a, a certain score to be taken on for therapy or have I got the wrong end of the stick?
1: <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Um, we have to use um, standardized assessments. So first we use a standardized assessment that has to have uh, normative data that reflects our population. Okay. So, you know, it needs to be normed on the children in the area that I'm working in. Yep. So we're in Southern California. That would be different than working in, you know, Georgia. OK, Yep. We'll say. Um, so we have to make sure of that. And then in addition to the standardized assessments, we also, um, because it's school based, we do classroom observations and we also um, do teacher and parent interviews as well to find out what their concerns are. So that's absolutely necessary. Yep. And then, um, yeah, to qualify, they have to... Each state actually has a different standard. Okay. Um, so some states might might differ a little bit by half a standard deviation or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But in California, we have to do, they have to be at least one and a half standards um, below, or standard deviations below, and below the seventh percentile. So. Okay, okay. So
0: that's, so I'm just thinking about the children that I see over here. That's not really
1: severe, is it? Um, I'm, it's, well. Not really. I mean, it, it is somewhat severe, but I think what's tricky is that in Southern California, we have so many people who might score a bit lower on those tests because English isn't their first language. Yeah. Um, and of course, we are meant to be assessing them in their home language, which, but that can sometimes mm-hmm. be a bit difficult. So, yeah. You really have to weigh those um, dialects and differences and, and making sure that they're not um, coming up, with, you know, they're not getting this score because they're um, they haven't gotten the right stimulation at home because they're already at risk, children. So
0: yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so you have to take on all those children who score below minus one standard deviation, minus one point five. Sorry.
1: Um. Yes. In a way. <laughs> <laughs> um. Working in the public schools is a bit different than working in a different area. So, unlike the UK, where we, you know, the NHS kind of covers both mainstream schools and special schools and um, the early years clinics, here the public schools only cover the public schools. Yeah. Um, the there's medically necessary uh, therapy, but that would be covered by someone else. Okay. Um, so within the public school. We have to um, make sure that you know. Obviously, they're one and a half standard deviations below the seventh, or below the seventh percentile. But also that 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 in, those difficulties are impacting their edu- their education. Yeah. Um. So that has to make a significant impact on their access to the curriculum. Okay. So if you had a child with a frontal lisp, for instance. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, would that child benefit from therapy? Sure. Um, maybe they have language issues as well and they score below one and a half standard deviations. Um, would I accept them solely on that? No, I have to weigh that against whether that's actually impacting their access to the curriculum.
0: Uh, okay, okay. That makes a little bit more sense now because I was it seemed a little bit like a kind of... Um or production line you know do the assessment they score this (laughs) therefore they get this and I was like oh there must be something more to it than that so that makes a lot more sense so you're also doing the lots of the classroom observation and the parental interview and you're thinking about impact um to accessing the curriculum um okay and then so do you then have to do you then have to prioritise the children that you're accepting for therapy or is there guidelines about they have this difficulty, therefore they get this much?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's a little bit more like the latter. Um, there's not really a waiting list. So it's not like in Ealing where we had um, a waiting list and you rotate through the blocks of therapy. Yeah. Um, once a child is... Um, Determined to need services, they are offered appropriate services to them. So, not every child gets three times a week, um, yeah. 30 minutes individual sessions. I don't think anyone could possibly handle that. No. Um, but there is a, a sort of formula that we can use that, um, depending on the type and the severity of the difficulty, how much time that child might get if it's in an individual session or if it's with a small group session with other children um and so there's it's not priority as as much as it is how much services they're given but once they're offered that, those services we we have to provide them okay
0: Okay, that's really interesting because I think over here in the u k obviously we've got such a problem with our waiting lists and massive mm-hmm. caseloads um It's really interesting to hear a completely different way of managing it so So, what happens when you have too many children who have been assessed and need services but not enough capacity then then what happens?
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're in a bit of a pickle right <laughs> um Well I I think it it puts a lot of pressure on the school systems and I think what we're feeling now is the fact that budgets are getting cut as they are there and we're losing therapists and um, yet we're we need to be in compliance with laws that say that we have to offer these children services and we have to provide them. Um, One of the ways I think we've we've helped ourselves out a bit is, you know, employing more um speech language pathology assistants. Yeah. So they're assistants that have I think about two years of experience, two years of schooling, um, with a special specialty in speech and language, but they're they can only provide or carry out a therapy, a treatment um a treatment plan that is written by a qualified speech and language pathologist. Okay. Um, so they're not allowed to assess, they're not allowed to do kind of di- any diagnosing, any sort of, um, treatment planning. They just have to follow the plan that I would write. Um, yeah. and, and that's helped a great deal. F- I, I currently actually have three, um, slippers, we call them, <laughs> or assistants, um, under me at the moment. Yeah. So we've got a caseload of about i'd say 70 75 at the moment okay that i'm responsible for ultimately but i've got three slippers that have divided that work amongst them
0: okay so it sounds similar to the canadian system um in that sort of more a consultative role for the therapist and more of the practical hands on therapy happening by assistance um mm-hmm. i guess um what it um seems like the assistants have higher levels of training perhaps than some of our assistants over here but not all of them lots of them are really experienced but i guess it's more on the job learning that they do over here rather than a Mm -hmm. kind of course or diploma or anything um okay so and then so you're saying about 75 children and you and then three people okay and and tell us about the different sort of packages so um (laughs) <laughs> what's what's sort of the most intensive therapies that somebody would be offered
1: um well I think the most intensive at my level that I've seen is is three times a week yeah. individual sessions for 30 minutes yeah. each session um and I think that's the that's the um one that everyone hears about and thinks oh my gosh how yeah. are they doing that yeah um, but, um, those are typically for children who are severely impacted. I'd say a child with, um, apraxia or dyspraxia, depending on which country you're in. <laughs> yeah. Um, who, you know, has some significant difficulties in the classroom who really need that kind of support. And, um, usually I start out with those three times a week 30 minute sessions and see how they go and then maybe we push into the classroom a little bit more we bring in a friend and you know of course I have to discuss any changes in the therapy with the parents yeah and ensure that they can sign off on that because I can't just change the therapy even though I think it's appropriate I need them to um, authorize it basically
0: okay so the. Th- the system does sound quite different doesn't it in terms of sort of the guidelines that we have that you have over there and that we have over here um Mm -hmm. it sounds like we have a little bit more flexibility to to kind of uh, offer therapy and then stop therapy which i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing um yeah um and less kind of guidelines about um you know packages that can be offered for certain things Um, and again I'm not sure whether that's a good idea or or not Um, perhaps we've got a little bit more freedom to make our own decisions Um, but then you know I don't know of anybody who's not in a kind of specialist um, unit or language resource base or something that's getting anywhere near that amount of therapy um so I, I'm interested to know do, do you think do you see good outcomes when you give that amount of therapy because I don't think I've ever given anybody that much <laughs> therapy um, is it is it
1: is it worth it do you think well I mean I think it depends on the child really I, of course the, the children who are getting the three times a week um are the children who we feel are need three times a week Yeah. Um, who we think we can make a difference in who are severely impacted um, and like I said we may start at three times a week and then you know find we can change that to two times or or, yeah. or groups or something like that to help um, but I would say that if a child you know has the appropriate intensity whether that's one time a week or two times or three times Um, and they're they're receiving effective you know research-based therapy then that can be really helpful in advancing them through the system and and getting them out of um, to be able to discharge them. Um, I felt like in in London I was often discharging them because I because they didn't show up or, yeah, um, you know, maybe parents just said, don't worry, we're fine. Um, but not or maybe they even aged out in mainstream schools. But here we go up through high school so they could effectively be on the caseload for years and years. But I think it really just comes down to the parental um. Inter- um interaction and yeah. put in involvement and then also the child you know is the child ready to to work on these things um are they motivated and you know that those two factors i think make a bigger impact on how we get a child through the system yeah uh, or you know get them out of of therapy rather than three times a week or two times a week yeah but,
0: okay yeah that that all makes sense um so um do you find sometimes that you 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 think that they need less therapy because they've made so much progress and the parents are resistant to what they see in kind of a decrease in services does that happen
1: or it, it definitely happens. I mean, I think there's a bit of counselling that needs to, to go on with parents as well. And I think that's another reason why it's important to have that parental involvement so that not only can they learn strategies, but they learn the, the progress, the, yeah. their child's rate of progress and how are they moving and what are we, what's our next goal? What are we moving toward? So um, I think that's another reason to keep them involved. But, um, you know, it's, it's It's absolutely part of that counselling progress. You do get parents who, well, I've had three times a week. They're making really good progress. I'm so afraid that if you'd go to two times a week, they're going to stop. They're not going to make that progress. So, you know, it's difficult sometimes, but it's, you know, it's part of my job to prove to them that, no, look what they've done so far and, and look where we're going and let's try it out for a bit and see how it goes. If it doesn't work, we can... You know, maybe we can go back to it. So, yeah. I, you know, I think there's that counselling aspect as well. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. And um, does um, kind of parental engagement with therapy factor into the initial decision about taking them on or how much they get or, or not because you're school based? Unfortunately,
1: no, because we're school based. Um, okay. If you were in a private therapy clinic, you could make that part of it, which yeah. I, I have done in the past when I worked in private therapy. Yeah. Um, I made it absolutely necessary that they had to be involved and attend at least half of the sessions. That's kind of part of their contract yeah. with us. Um, but unfortunately, in the public schools, it's, it, it's, it's not that way. It's kind of that um, unfortunate mentality that, you know, my child's in the education system, so that you can educate them so that that, that really can't be a factor in our uh, you know accepting them or qualifying them
0: yeah yeah
1: um, i i'd like it to be but.
0: yeah yeah i we just uh- you know having the same um difficulties that we had when you were over here around you know numbers of of children and things and trying to think about okay um you know parental involvement is so crucial in terms of getting the outcomes that we want um is there a way of incorporating that into you know the decision to take them on for therapy in the first place but um mm-hmm. i guess we, we you know thinking about our school service it's the same isn't it they don't have a huge amount of involvement with the parents either so Right,
1: yeah. Right, yeah. I think, you know, one of the things when, when I was there in London that we had discussed was that, um, you know, having a a parent session of, you know, having the parent only sessions, but, um, before they even started any groups or any therapy whatsoever. Yeah. And I think there have been times where I've really, really wanted to incorporate that here. Okay. Um, but you know, and I think it's a really good idea because like I said, I've found the most progress with children comes from that level of par- um, parent, parent's involvement. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to incorporate some parent-only kind of sessions um, and and some training sessions into my my practice here a little bit more. But unfortunately, I think it's it's coming together and trying to see what's appropriate. You know, coming together with commissioners and in the UK or or the state and federal government here because we're governed by these laws. Yeah. So obviously, I can't. I have to be in compliance. I can't go against the law. <laughs> Here and say nope sorry yeah i <laughs> can't do that so i think you know it's just coming together and needing to change it as a whole system really yeah absolutely
0: okay well we've we've talked about how we we see the best outcomes when parents are involved um but tell us how how you measure outcomes and track data because i think from what i've seen on on twitter and my informal conversations with americans it seems like that's perhaps more
1: rigorous than the way we do it over here (laughs) um i think it's it's there's there's the difference for sure Mm um i wouldn't say you know we don't really have a, a a system like rio for instance um we do have a computerized system but it's not quite the same okay so i think one of the differences i saw from working in the mainstream schools in in london and working here is that um you know, I've got more um, more of an impact, more of a say in the IEP process. Okay. Um, I know that, you know, in London we would write reports and say this is what the child needs, this is what, um, these are my suggested areas for goals and things like that. But um, in the U.S., as a therapist, I have to write those goals in... Um, Directly onto the IEP. Okay, it's up to me to make them measurable. Obviously, they have to be smart. Yeah, um, so we have to do that. Um, but then every year, it's up to me to write progress reports. We have four progress reports we write a year. Okay, because obviously it's a different system. Um, the child's receiving services throughout the year. There's no. Blocks or yeah. being put back on the waiting list. They they have regular services throughout the year. Um, so each session, I would write a note reflecting that goal or the one of the um, short term objectives to that goal. Yeah. So something like you know John produced the initial p sound sixty percent of the time in single words during structured activities given minimal prompts.
0: Yeah.
1: And that would be for every session so that at the end of my marking period when I need to write the progress report, I can say exactly where he is on that goal. Yeah. And then at the end of the year, we revise those goals. Did he meet? Did he partially meet or not meet those goals? And if you haven't met the goal, then that's a really big issue. <laughs> but, um, but I think, you know, there's more... I think there's more focus on those smart targets. And I find it really difficult to, um, you know, do that in in London when we had five weeks to kind of see what the outcome was. And of course, you can see there's going to be some progress, but you're not really going to see that kind of day to day. There's more of a regular um, approach to this, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. writing down those. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and yeah, so you're seeing them kind of throughout the year. Um, do you think that I've also been thinking a lot about who takes responsibility for the child and the therapy? And I guess, you know, the idea over here is that we do the five week or six-week blocks of therapy and then the child is in a kind of consolidation period where either the parent or the nursery staff are continuing to practice those targets. Um, and I think it's really important that we try to not take sole responsibility for for the language difficulties. Obviously, you know, we're, we're the the specialists and we're guiding the, the treatment program, but we're thinking a lot about how to kind of hand that responsibility over to other people in the child's life. Um, do you find that you end up taking more of that responsibility on or do you still try to hand some things back to the teachers and the education staff around how to incorporate those goals kind of in, in, in the child's everyday life?
1: Well, I think, that's, um, I think that's something that's very tricky in the US um, because, again, there's all sorts of laws and, and regulations that we have to stand by. So, um, you know, with, with the IEP... The system dictates that we have to write a goal for every difficulty the child has. Um, and in that goal, you can say who's responsible for that child meeting that goal. Okay. If it's a speech language therapy goal, then you cannot put the parents, it's not up to the parents for that child to meet the goal. Wow, that, that's really interesting, isn't it? Sort a it, real difference. It, it, is. <laughs> um, but it's you know it's it's bound in law that we have to you know we would put either the speech and language pathologist or the speech and language pathology assistant, or a speech aide. Um, three, you know, we could put those three people, but we generally don't put um, classroom teachers or parents on those okay. goals. However, if you did write the goal to reflect the child will do X, Y, Z in the classroom yep. with classroom assistance, and you've discussed this with the classroom teacher ahead of time, yep. then you may be able to put in there that the classroom teacher is also uh, responsible for that child meeting that goal in okay. conjunction with the therapist. So I think it comes down to really all of those legal details on how you're writing the reports yeah and 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 what you're really bound by yeah
0: yeah, absolutely (laughs) and yeah I can understand that there's that legal frame that work that you have to work with I'm just imagining that if we had that over here we'd have even more pushback from teaching staff and Mm -hmm. parents oh no no you do it you know it's in the IEP you're the one that's responsible for this goal and I guess yeah it's just a very different different system isn't it
1: yeah it is I mean I think it's you know when you're working about when you're talking about the schools I think it's 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 very clear difference I mean um there are certain aspects of mainstream schools that you know working in mainstream schools in London that I really liked and other ones that I wasn't too sure about (laughs) Um, so you know everything has its pros and
0: cons absolutely yeah Yeah. and I mean it sounds like generally the children are getting a lot more direct input not necessarily from a therapist but from an assistant over there than they do over here um but it's just interesting that kind of thinking about who who's responsible for that that shift in behavior that uh, shift that we're hoping to see from from therapy um tell us also how your Your team is structured because over here we're kind of um, geographically based aren't we and you know we have those big teams of therapists where you, you get a lot of informal support and opportunity to ask questions and brainstorm and things is it a bit more separated by school over there or do you have those teams as well
1: well I think you know I am absolutely feeling a huge difference between okay. what I had, what I was experiencing in London, and what I was, what I'm now experiencing here. Um, there is definitely, there's a team. We definitely have a team. Um, we come together about once a month okay. or so, maybe sometimes a little over once a month. Um, but that's generally just for a meeting to discuss issues in the district. Um, it's not. I didn't feel as though there really is um, CPD focused. I guess is what we were experiencing in London yeah. from our big team meetings. But unfortunately, here you're you're right in thinking that it's not. It's not centrally based. We don't have a central base or central office that we come to. If you're assigned to a school, you work in that school and that's the only place you go. Yeah. Um, that's where your your desk is, that's where your phone is, that's that's where your caseload is. Yeah. Um, sometimes you might work with another therapist, sometimes you're alone. It just depends how big the school is, how big the caseload, all of those things. I am currently lucky enough to have two to three other other um, therapists around me yeah. <laughs> in the building, but it's just two to three. And, you know, everyone's so um, loaded down with work that it's difficult to kind of pick out times to just drop by. You can't just you're not just sitting right next to someone where you can say, hey, have you had such and such before? What have you done for it? Yeah. Um, yeah. You really have to put in a little bit more effort in, in tracking someone down. Yeah. So um, there's definitely difference there and and I'm feeling that a bit more. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, the, the hierarchical support structure, I think, that I experienced in London isn't the same in the school district I'm in now. Okay, so supervision, you mean? Right, right. Um, we do have, I have one uh, lead SLP, who is my supervisor, yep. who I go to if I have questions. And he's been very supportive and just, you know, very willing to, to help with anything he can. And he's usually available with, you know, by phone or by email. Yeah. But I don't have meetings with him. There aren't, you know, our six week meetings, yeah. sessions that I know are dedicated to me for a certain amount of time and we can talk about things. Yeah, um, There's no band sevens, you know, supporting band fives. There's no banding okay. here. Um, so your salary might be based on how many years you've worked, but there's no system of supervision or peer supervision going on so that's um a bit unfortunate i think and i'm trying to talk with my my current supervisor and and see if we can get some you know peer grouping kind of thing going on yeah a bit more because i thought that was really helpful yeah yeah
0: (laughs) i think so. another person that you can be assigned to yeah do you think that, that that's just your school district or do you think that that's a kind of general thing across several places in the US?
1: Well, I'd say, um, I, I think definitely throughout the US. And once you're uh, you know assigned to that school, you're very rarely outside of that school. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure who other teams, maybe some other teams have set it up so they meet more often or they have different system of working um, you know I'm not I'm not sure how other people have have made any changes to that yeah yeah
0: um okay so it's that yeah the the system of supervision is is different um yeah I think that the being based in one school is is also really interesting because I think we sometimes struggle to make those relationships with school staff but if you're based there all the time then I guess that's that's much easier you're really part of the team aren't you
1: yeah, I think that's one thing that I've I I really like um, here is that I've really gotten to know um, the um, equivalent to the headmaster and yeah. the head teachers and. and um, these schools and you know, we've got family support advocates that um, I've come become quite close to um, That I can count on them to help me track down parents and all those things So I think making those relationships have been um, Really really helpful and you know showing them that you're a part of the team rather than just coming in once every few weeks or months <laughs> <laughs> Yeah yeah. four times a term or something yeah. like that Absolutely. Um, so yeah that's been that's been really nice
0: yeah oh well thank you rebecca it's been really interesting to hear about the differences and that it's really useful to speak to somebody who knows both of the systems really well um and i think i'll probably be picking your brains more about how we could try that idea of having no waiting list um <laughs> that, <laughs> that sounds great um
1: thank you very much great right, thank you it's been a pleasure <laughs>
0: like to hear more about the problems with waiting lists and discuss how to get control of your time by prioritising your caseload and negotiating expectations, join me for the Therapy Ideas Workshop. It's a full-day event at Sadler's Wells in London on Friday the 12th of October 2012. For details and to buy your ticket, go to therapyideas.org forward slash workshop.